What's up, West Village family? How's it going? Uh, Chris here, one of the leaders at West Village. Uh, great to have you joining us today for our Sunday gathering. Uh, if you can't tell, you should probably already know, but we are jumping into uh, a new little four-week sermon series. Uh, really wanting to um, help us as a church family think about how the gospel informs how we kind of process politics and think about politics. Now, some of you may be asking, like, why Why would you talk about this, right? The church isn't supposed to talk about politics uh, as Canadians, right? What are our core values? We don't talk about religion. We don't talk about politics. We're kind of these passive-aggressive Canadians. We don't talk about these things. Uh, but it doesn't, you know, take, uh, you, don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to be like uh, a rocket scientist to, like, realize that we are living in a crazy, like, politically charged moment. It seems like everything is political. I mean, it's easy to to take shots right south of the border. Like a few weeks ago, there was a there was this guy who was praying in a in a government uh, meeting, right? About, I think it was like a Senate meeting or something like that. And he ends his prayer by saying, "Amen and a woman, <laughs> amen and a woman," and, and, and people go nuts, right? Just uh, a couple of weeks ago, we we saw you know this picture is like burned in our social media like memories, like we will never be able to scrub our minds of this picture of this like Davy Crockett meets Braveheart. Like if Davy Crockett and Braveheart had a kid, it would have looked like this guy. I mean, there's this picture of this guy like in the middle of the Capitol building. He's like praying to Jesus after storming the Capitol. Like this is, this is madness. It seems like every single issue is about politics. Every single issue. We are finding a way to functionally eat ourselves from the inside out when it comes to politics. And so what we're saying as a church is we got to know how to think about this stuff. We got to know how to process it. We got to know how to how to interact. But ultimately what we want to do is we, we want to be able to think biblically about politics. Politics are a part of our world. And so we, we need to know how the gospel informs how we as followers of Jesus think about these things, engage with these things, because it's a part of our lived human experience and it's a part of God's ordered world. And so we got to know how to navigate this. So what we're going to do is we're going to take four weeks to talk about this stuff. And, and my hope is really in four weeks, like I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to offend people. Okay. That's not the goal. My goal is to avoid landmines. I'm not going to get into the, the minutia of of policy, but what we are going to do is kind of take a step back and, and talk about what does it mean to have a Christian worldview, a Christian mind, a, a kingdom-centered, Jesus-centered mind as we look at this stuff. And so we we want to engage with you as much as we can in a in a season where we're socially distanced and all that, and even that's become political. And, and so here's how you can participate, okay? Obviously, we got chat forms on all our live gatherings. You can participate on there and, and have at or be nice, be nice, okay? Uh, but you can text in questions. So there's a number on the screen below me. You can text in any questions you have to that number on the screen. And throughout the month, we're going to be doing these like pop-up social media events where we're going to actually engage with the questions you're asking. We'll film some videos, maybe some podcasts. We'll do some Q&A. And we want to create space to engage with the questions that you have uh, around this issue. So send them in, let us know. So for the next four weeks, uh, that's what we're going to do. Okay, I want to get right to work because we've got a lot to cover. you got a Bible. Go Genesis chapter 11, okay? Genesis chapter 11. And I'm going to set this up for us like this. If you're familiar with the, the story arc of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 uh, are God's creation of the world. Now, it's really important for us to understand that Genesis 1 and 2 happens before Genesis chapter 3. If you 
Went to public school, you know this, right? One, two, then three. But Genesis chapter three is where we have what is traditionally known as the fall. So Genesis one and two happened before Genesis three, and this happens pre-fall. And we have this picture of a world that God created that is good, where he is Lord over all creation. There's no sin, there's no death. Adam and Eve are in perfect, harmonious relationship with one another. Uh, They are walking in the cool of the garden with God himself. The world is as it ought to be. It's, It's a good world. In fact, that's how God declares it to be. He says it is very good. And then in Genesis chapter three, sin enters into the world. But it's really important for us to understand what the nature of that sin is. So often when we think of sin, we have like a small view of it or a bit of a reductionistic view of sin where sin equals bad behavior. And there's a sense in which that is true. Uh, But when we, for us to really understand what's happening in Genesis chapter three, is we have to understand what's happening beneath the bad behavior, beneath the rebellion, beneath the, the disobedience. So what we have in the garden scene is we have this distinction between creator and creation, right? Creator, God, is above creation, Adam and Eve. But in Genesis chapter 3, what we see is that Adam and Eve are actually essentially functionally trying to pull a coup on God. They are functionally trying to invert the order. They are saying, we know better than you, God. We, yes, you are creator and we are creation, but we actually, we want to be above you. We want to be on top of you. We think we're better than you. This is what the Apostle Paul describes in in Romans chapter 1, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They chose not to believe God. And, And at the beginning of that, Uh, reality, that sin reality is that enters into the created order as this rebellion, this disobedience enters into the created order. That like sets this ripple effect throughout creation, throughout human history of brokenness, sin, and death. And so if you start to just follow along the storyline of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3 on, what do we start to see? We start to see the effects of this inversion of the created order. So creator, creation gets inverted, and we see the, the ripple effects that come as a result of the brokenness of Adam and Eve, of this inversion of the created order. Uh, so we see... <clears throat> Coming right out of Genesis chapter 3, we see the first murder between Cain and Abel. Then we see the the story that that we're all so very familiar with, uh, the the flood, where God brings his wrath and judgment upon the world. But the question is why? Why does he bring his wrath and judgment upon the world? Well, he does it because the world is, is in such disrepair. It's so broken. There's so much sin that his heart was grieved and he he needed to do something about it. And then Genesis chapter 11 is the absolute height of the fall story. So Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11 really make up the the total summation of the, the, the fall story. And what we see here in Genesis chapter 11 is the sort of the apex or the zenith of this fall. So if you, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 11, uh, let's, let's take a look at this. Here we go, verse 1. It says this, Now the whole world had one language. And, co- and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in uh, Shinar, and they settled there. Verse 3, they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then notice this, verse 4, okay, this is what I really want us to hone in on. Verse 4, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. 
Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. Now, putting politics aside for just a moment, what we are seeing here in Genesis chapter 11, specifically verse 4, is a picture of what idolatry looks like. If in Genesis chapter 3, we had a picture of Adam and Eve inverting the created order, creation, wanting to become creator, here in Genesis 11, we see what this looks like on a social level. When a group of people decide this, look at what it says right in verse 4. Look at how it starts. Come, let us build ourselves. Uh, there's a sense here in which uh, the, the people wanted to build something for themselves. It wasn't about worship done unto the Creator, done unto God. It was about worship unto themselves. It was about them. It was about their glory. It was about their enjoyment. It was about their contentment. It was about their name being made great. Because look at how it continues. It says, come, let us build a city. And so we, we see this full transaction taking place whereby the people are actually trading everything that God offered them for a counterfeit, for something less than. If you go back to the garden, here we have in Genesis 11, we have a picture of people wanting to build for themselves a city. You go back to the garden, what did God actually offer Adam and Eve? What did he offer humanity? He offered them a garden, but it wasn't just a garden. It was a garden city. He called them to work in it. He called them to fill it and subdue it. This was, this was something that was being offered to them by God, and it was a good, perfect creation. But here they trade God's good, perfect creation for a counterfeit. And then look at what it says next. They want to build a city with a tower that what? Reaches to the heavens. So, so here we have the people wanting to get themselves up to heaven. But what did they have offered to them in the garden? What was offered to them in the Garden of Eden? It was actually the presence of God. They actually had this reality, the experience of this reality, whereby they got to actually walk in the garden with God himself. They got to experience the fullness of a, of a created order where the presence of God was, was with that created order and there was no sin, there was no death, there was no destruction and yet the people trade in what God offers for, again, for a counterfeit. And then notice what it says next. They want to uh, build a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? So that, they make, may, may, so that they may make a name for themselves, for ourselves. What do we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? What does God do? He creates Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. And then what does it say? It says he breathes his very breath into them. He names them, names them Adam and Eve. And he gives them a new identity. He doesn't just give them a name. He gives them a new identity. He declares them to be very good. He declares all of his creation to be very good. And what we see here, again, is a trading in of the goodness that God offers for a counterfeit reality. This is Romans 1, exchanging the glory of God, the truth of God for a lie, and worshiping created, created things rather than creator God. And this Genesis 11 framework of the, the brokenness of humanity, the reality of the sin of humanity, sets a framework for us of how we can understand the, the brokenness of the moment we find ourselves in as it pertains to politics. See, here in Genesis 11, humanity rejects what God offers them and exchanges it for something else. And this is exactly what we have done as it as it pertains to politics. Uh, there's a great quote by a man named Stephen Shoemaker, and he says this. He says, our lives 
must find their place in some greater story or they will find their place in some lesser story. Our lives must find their place in some greater story or they will find their, lo- uh, they will find their place in some lesser story. This helps frame up for us what we are experiencing when we look out at the world as it pertains to politics and see how it's, it's ravaging our society. Functionally, what we have done as a people is we have taken the story of God and we've placed it, we've pushed it off to the margins and we've exchanged the story of God for a different story. It's been replaced with a political vision. So so instead of having a vision that God has for humanity, we trade that vision in for the, the political vision that is being offered to us. And so instead of having God's values and God's vision for humanity, now instead what we have is a political vision with political values as a vision for humanity. Now now it's about our political party. It's about our political leaders. They take the center of the story and God is no longer there. What's happening is we are finding ourselves not in the story of God, not located in the story of God, but but rather located in a lesser story, located in a story that has a different vision for our lives. And as a culture, the dominant storyline is no longer no longer the story of God. It's no longer this reality that says that we as humanity were made in the image and likeness of God and we as humanity have sinned and rebelled against God. We functionally traded in our God-given identity for a counterfeit identity and the remedy for that is God's saving, redeeming work in the person of Jesus and that God's desire for us is to return us to this garden state, this, this, this heavenly state where there is no sin, there's no death, and we as humanity are united as one, brought under the person work of Jesus where we sing worship songs to him forever. We've traded that story in for a different story. Uh, we, we've traded that story in for a political story, a story that, that says the problem with humanity is not, not that we're broken, it's not that we've sinned. Sin is not our problem. Our problem is uh, that we, we functionally just, we need to progress beyond where we are in order to overcome the problems that face us. And so just like Genesis chapter 11, where, where, where this was all about the self, come let us build for ourselves. We as a people, we as a society, we, we are trying to build for ourselves something to overcome the problem that is in front of us. And instead of trusting in a savior like Jesus, we, we trust in our political saviors. We, we trust in their, their recommendations for our salvation. And we trust that if they can get into uh, office, if they can win their election, that they will take us to the functional promised land, the functional heaven. And when that doesn't happen, what this leads to is our utter destru- destruction. We exchange the goodness of God, the story of God, for another story. Uh, Tim Keller, in 2009, keep in mind, okay, in 2009, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And in that book, he has a subsection of one of the chapters. Now it would probably be an entire chapter, but he has a subsection, one of his chapters, uh, that's all about political idolatry. This is a long quote, but I want to work my way through it. And here's what he writes, and tell me if this lands or not. He says, one of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. 
We say, what a shame, how difficult. Sorry, we do not say, what a shame, how difficult, but rather, this is the end and there is no hope. Now, so often when we think of an idol, we think of a small statue, we think of maybe a different, uh, you know, a small statue that we give worship to, we think of maybe a different religion. But what Tim Keller is suggesting here is that an idol is actually something other than that. It could be those things, but it, but it could also be the, the thing that we put all of our hope and we put all of our trust in. And we know that based on how we respond to, to that idol when it doesn't give us what we want. So if we put all of our hope and our trust, for example, in a political leader and the political leader doesn't win, doesn't give us what they said they were going to give us, what happens? It, it, it leads to this brokenness of heart. It leads to this, this fear. It's not just what a shame, how difficult, but this is the end. There is no hope. I mean, just think for a second, um, you know, if you think back to uh, 2016, if you want to have some fun, go back, go on YouTube uh, and, and just YouTube up or Google up uh, how people responded in 2016 as the election results were coming in in the United States. I mean, there were absolute meltdowns as the, the, the vast majority of people were very certain that Donald Trump had absolutely no chance at winning the election. And as the election results were coming in, you could just see these news anchors and these political commentators like literally on live TV melting down. It's a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. I'm not going to lie. Why? Because it wasn't just an election, right? This was like, this was more than an election. This was all of our hopes, all of our dreams placed in on a political leader, on a political moment. And the idol was failing. You could see the idol failing in real time. That's, that's what we're seeing in our culture, the dumpster fire that is the political arena where things are, are just imploding left, right, and center. What is that? It's a function of our idols failing us. All of our hopes and dreams getting placed on something and it not actually being able to deliver what it promised it would deliver. Keller goes on though and he says this, this may be the reason why so many People now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. Remember, this is 2009. Keller's like a prophet. Uh, they, they become agitated and fearful for the future. Uh, they have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. And when their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything will fall apart. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party. And instead, they focus on the points of disagreement. The points of contention overshadow everything else. And a poisonous environment is created. If you don't believe me, just think about every election cycle that has ever come through, whether Canadian or U.S. We always feel like this political moment is the most important moment that there has ever been. That everything is riding on this election. As if it doesn't, as if it, it doesn't go the way we want it to go, our functional heaven will not be achieved because our functional savior will have failed us. Friends, friends, I want you to see how in this post-Christian secular society, politics has become the new religion. With its gurus and teachers, with its promises of salvation and eternity, 
And for so many of us inside the church, outside the church, but even inside the church, we are buying it. Uh, Keller goes on to say this. He says, another sign of idolatry in our politics is that opponents are not considered to be simply mistaken, but evil. After the last presidential election, again, remember this is 09, my 84-year-old mother observed it used to be that whoever was elected as your president, even if he wasn't the one you voted for, he was still your president. That doesn't seem to be the case any longer. After each election, there is now a significant number of people who see the incoming president lacking moral legitimacy. The increasing political polarization and bitterness we see in the US, in U.S. politics today is a sign that we have made political activism into a form of religion. How does idolatry produce fear and demonization? Dutch-Canadian philosopher Al Wolters taught that in the biblical view of things, the main problem in life is sin, and the only solution is God and his grace. The alternative form to this view is to identify something besides sin as the main problem with the world and something besides God as the main remedy. Genesis chapter 11, that demonizes something that is not completely bad and it makes an idol out of something that cannot be the ultimate good. Feel the weight of that. In political idolatry, we make a God out of having power. Friends, we have to realize that there is only one story that will bring us salvation. Uh, our, Our guy, right? He's not some political leader. Our guy is Jesus. And our team or our political party, it's not some, it's not some political party. It's actually the church. And, and our vision, our, our, our vision isn't some political vision, but it's the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. In our heaven, our future hope and future reality is not when our political vision gets fully worked out, but rather it's the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus, Jesus says there's going to be no more sin, there's going to be no more death, friends, there's going to be no more elections. Right, Because he is seated on the throne. It's good news for us, church. It's, it's good news. Now, we know that. right? We, we, we are so keenly aware of that. But yet, there's this tension, and this is where the rub is going to be. And this is where we're going to have to do some hard work as a church to discuss. There's, there's this reality that we have to face that we, we, are, we are called by Jesus to be in the world, but not of the world. Right? That's literally how he prays for us in John chapter 17. We are called not to, not to just hit the exit button. So, okay, Chris, is that what you're saying? Like, politics are out, right? We're all about Jesus. We're not all about politics. We're going we're gonna to unpack that even more uh, next week when I talk about how the church and the, the state are to interact with one another and how we are to view the government in light of what the scriptures teach us. Uh, but we can't. We can't just hit the eject button on this. Jesus calls us to be in the world, and part of being in the world is the reality that there is a political element to what it means to live in the world that the way it's currently constituted in light of the brokenness and sin that we experience. But we are not called, we are called to not rather be of the world. In other words, we, we, we don't just take everything that is put out in front of us hook, line, and sinker. And so what I want to do is take some time to just ask the question, how is it that the Christian is to think about politics? 
In light of the story of God, in light of the gospel, in light of what we know about Jesus, how are we to think about politics? Now, again, I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of political issues and who you should vote for. That's that's pretty much not going to come up at all in this series. But what I want to help us do is kind of take a step back, a 20,000-foot view at this political conversation, and just ask the question, how do we think biblically, how do we think in light of the gospel about politics? Now, now what I'm going to do is walk us through a little bit of an exercise, and this exercise is uh, something that I borrowed from from a professor by the name of Michael Goheen. He, he uh, lives in Canada part-time, lives in the States part-time, teaches widely, thinks a lot about the story of God for sure, the gospel, teaches theology, but he, but he also has a lot of interesting things to say uh, when it comes to politics. So, so when we think about politics, and this is going to be extremely um, oversimplified, okay? Some of you, especially those of you who are super into politics, probably those of you who aren't super into politics, you're, you just turn it off and you're like either watching something else or you're taking a nap. Uh, but those of you who are super into politics, you, you're going to need to recognize with me, I don't have a ton of time to get into the weeds here. And so this is going to be extremely oversimplified. But, but I want you to imagine with me for a second an axis, okay? There's an axis um, that runs right to left. It's, it's um, a horizontal axis. And on the right side of the political, or on the right side of that axis, is the, uh, the the right side of the political spectrum. This is classically identified as conservative politics, or a conservative um, view to to politics. And conservative uh, conservative conservatism, I didn't say that right. Conservative politics is often marked by again. This is a gross oversimplification, but bear with me. By um, by freedom. And by responsibility. In other words, uh, somebody who's on the right side of the political spectrum tends to place a high value on personal freedom and on a person's ability in light of that freedom to make good choices and therefore are responsible for their own situation and their own well-being. Again, crude summary, but bear with me. On the other end of the political spectrum, the left side of the political spectrum, this is classically understood as like a liberal view of, you know, the political arena. So this would be the the left-leaning side of the political spectrum. It tends to be, again, oversimplification, but it tends to be characterized by equality and social justice. In other words, uh, somebody who's on this end of the political spectrum would look at the, the, the Western world, at least, the way it's currently constituted, and say, and say something to the effect of, when I look out of the world, I recognize that there's freedom, I recognize that there's responsibility, but it would appear to me as if uh, the free market and a person's ability to uh, choose freely and take responsibility for themselves tends to, not all the time, but tends to favor those who are from a privileged class. And we think it's vitally important that there be equality and justice for all. And so you have two ends of the political spectrum, and you have policies that reflect their particular view of the political spectrum, and you have a political vision that that kind of flows out of that. Now, it's important to note that wherever a person lands on the spectrum of ideas, everybody recognizes that there's freedoms. Everybody recognizes that there's responsibility. Everybody recognizes that they want they want uh, you know a form or a measure of equality, and everybody recognizes that they want to see justice. So, what's the problem here? 
Well, there's a couple of problems, and I don't have time to unpack all the problems, but I, but I want to highlight two very important problems. Again, for those of us who would identify as followers of Jesus, as we look at this spectrum, this political spectrum, what are the problems? Here's the first one. Either or both of those political uh, ends of the spectrum, those political visions, are completely and utterly reductionistic, meaning this. They interpret the political task through a very narrow and specific lens. So again, if you were to just ask the question, how many of you are against personal freedom or against personal responsibility or against social equality? Nobody would say yes, they are. Because, now think about this, this is important. Every single one of these ideas is in some way, shape, and form a reflection of the truth of God. Both ends of the political spectrum reflect aspects and characteristics of the heart of God, of his character and his nature. Because humanity is made in his image and likeness, yes, broken, but still made in his image and likeness, both ends of the political spectrum will reflect his goodness. And we see this interesting development happening, especially right now, especially, this is more of an American comment than it is a Canadian comment, but it was just not that long ago where it was unthinkable if you were a follower of Jesus to vote for any other political party but a right-leaning political party. But now what we're starting to see is that more and more Christians are starting to vote on the other end of the political spectrum. And in fact, many Christians who vote on the other end of the political spectrum could not imagine a Christian voting on the opposite end of the political spectrum. And the reason for that is because both ends have aspects of the truth of God that are important. But this leads right to the second problem, which is this, neither end of the political spectrum reflects the full gospel. Because each of them is reductionistic, we have to recognize that neither side fully represents the kingdom of God, fully represents the heart of God, fully represents the essence of the gospel. Neither side can deliver humanity from its brokenness. So what then? What is the Christian response? Here's what it comes down to. Uh, We have to recognize that our political ambitions and desires, all of them, every single one of them, falls short of the gospel. And that we cannot put our hope and our dreams and our ideals on any political party. And in fact, what needs to be placed at the center, I want to be clear about something here before I make this comment. I'm not talking about the political center, but I'm talking about the center of the story. What needs to be placed at the very center is this, it's Jesus. That Jesus then must become the framework through which we interpret all political visions, all political ideas, all political policies, all political leaders, all political thoughts. 
that the political story comes underneath the story of God, that the dominant story that the Christian subscribes to is the Christian story. And it becomes like a, a set of glasses that we wear that we now interpret the political arena through, not the other way around. They aren't side by side. The political vision isn't higher than the vision that God has for his life. It comes underneath the vision that God has for his people. And now we interpret all of the political arena through the gospel. Does this mean we can't have convictions? Of course not. Does this mean we shouldn't be active politically? Of course not. We'll talk all about that. But here's what I would say is that the gospel now informs everything. The kingdom of heaven informs everything. It informs how we carry ourselves on social media as we interact with one another around the political conversation. I mean, just think about some of the things that get said on social media about our political leaders, by Christians, no less. It's awful. Oh, we are commanded in the scriptures not to condemn our political leaders, but to pray for them. To pray that God would grant them grace and wisdom as they seek to lead us because he's the one who's appointed them. I mean, regularly, I... I take time to pray right now specifically for some of our provincial leaders who are making some very difficult decisions. And I just imagine, I imagine, you know, our, our health uh, minister, Adrian Dix, I imagine uh, Bonnie Henry and what their Twitter mentions, you know, feed looks like. And it's got it's to be horrible. People just saying awful things. And I literally pray that God would protect from their minds and their hearts, uh, that, that Satan would not get a foothold as a result of the things that are said about them. Do I agree with all their decisions? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But I'm called to pray for them and to love them. I, I regularly take debate on social media and get into political conversations, and it never ends well, ever, ever. But yet the gospel is the thing that needs to guide all of our decisions. The gospel, the story of God, now it, it also becomes the thing that, that informs how we disagree with one another. I mean, as I look at the state of the church, you know, for the next several years, as I looked down the quarter of time, I'm not imagining doctrine to be the number one thing to divide the church. I'm not, I'm not imagining, uh, you know, our view of scripture, our view of the atonement, the kind of songs we sing to be the number one thing that divides the church. Here's what I'm imagining is going to be what divides the church. Politics. Politics. I mean, even right now, the moment we're in right now, timestamp this, right? It's, it's January 2021. Our, 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 our government is rolling out COVID-19 vaccinations. And, and people are all over the map on this. You have people who are on one end of the spectrum of the vaccination conversation, and they are saying, I can't believe you would get a vaccination. How could you possibly get a vaccination? Don't you understand? This is the mark of the beast. Don't you understand, right? This is, this is the government's way of controlling you. They're going to put something in you. It's going to, it's going to track you. You can't travel without a vaccination. How could you possibly do this? Don't you know what I know? Haven't you seen what I've seen? Haven't you read what I've read? Why aren't you informed like I'm informed? Don't you read your Bible? You should never get a vaccination. And if you get a vaccination, I'm not sure you're even a Christian. That's one end. On the other end, you have the exact opposite situation going on, right? Don't you love old people? Don't you love your neighbor? Don't you want to end the lockdown? Haven't you read what I read and watched what I watched? Like, if you knew what I knew, like, you would get the vaccination. Are you even a Christian if you don't get a vaccination? 
And these things now are dividing us. And what, is, what does the scripture say? Scripture, this, is, this should blow our minds. But we, if we are followers of Jesus and on, and on the opposite end of the political spectrum, you and I have more in common than we do with a non-believer who's on the same side of the political spectrum as us. The, the highest, the highest ideal for us is the gospel and we divide over nothing else. The Apostle Paul, you know, he calls us. He calls us to preach the gospel and that being of first importance, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, he says, I long to preach the gospel and nothing else to you. And what, what the scriptures call us to as the people of God is that we would be unified, right? That the gospel would be the thing that unifies us and nothing else would divide us that we would treat each other with grace and compassion. We would treat those who we disagree with with grace and compassion because our desire is to make much of Jesus. Our, our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in our political vision. Our hope is not in our political leaders. Our hope is not in our political systems, but it's in Jesus. It's only about Jesus, right, church? It's only about Jesus, right, church? And it will only always ever be all about Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so here's my fear for us. Here's, here's my concern. It's not that you have political opinions. It's not that you have political ideas. I got, I got lots. I got lots of them. That's not the problem. We should. We should have them. We should have convictions. We should be invested my problem is this, is that some of us, some of you have actually given yourself over to a political vision. You've given yourself over to a political ideology, and it's actually taken the place of God in your life. Your vision of a perfect world, it's one where your political vision comes to bear. And when that doesn't happen, it says, if the world is falling apart. Now, where does that leave us? We've got to come to Jesus. We have to give ourselves back to Jesus. We have to recognize that the only thing that can save us is Jesus. Now, we're going to sort out the details of what it looks like to be engaged politically, but family, can I just encourage us in this moment that we find ourselves, if ever a time if ever there was an opportunity to make Jesus look beautiful, it's right now. A church, hundreds of people that are a part of our church who have different ideas of how the world should work or from different ethnic backgrounds, have different political ideas, lean differently politically, have different opinions about all sorts of different issues. But we can actually put those aside and say those aren't of first importance and those aren't the things that we are going to let divide us because we are going to come together around the person and work of Jesus. Wouldn't that make Jesus look beautiful in our city? That we would put aside our own convictions because Jesus is more important and we want to love our brother and sister ahead of ourselves. It's not about making a name for ourselves, but it's about making it's about making a name for Jesus. 
It's not about making us known. It's about making Jesus known. And so as we enter into this conversation, here's the invitation. It's to give yourself over to Jesus. To Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you. Thank you that you're good and that you love us and that you have a better story to tell for our lives. We look at our world and it's a mess. It's a hot, hot mess, Jesus. And you want to come in and you want to save and you want to rescue and you want to redeem. And I just pray we'd humbly submit ourselves to you. We would not put our hope in this world. We'd not put our hope in our leaders. We'd not put our hope in our political systems or ideas or ideologies, but we'd put our hope and trust in you. And so I pray for our church that we'd be more unified than we ever have. Not, not around politics, not around that stuff, but we'd be unified around you, around making you known in our city, around your mission. And that spirit of God, you would bind us together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church.